At St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo many years ago, we had the Sisters of the Transfiguration and Sister Leoba around this time of year when we had one of these Christmas Eve, Friday, Christmas Saturday, Sunday, the regular thing. She said to the kids, you know what? There's just been too much church. Uh, through the Christmas cycle, that is to say the, the, the Christmas Day cycle, which is Christmas Eve, Christmas, and actually this Sunday, uh, we read many of the same readings. And so I want to preach on the Johannine Prologue this morning, which is the introduction to John's Gospel. But before that, to mention to you again uh, what I preach about every Christmas tide, and that is the four affirmations, the things that this festival of Christmas affirms every year. Christmas is a theological festival. It isn't the commemoration of literal history. And what I mean by that is, now that we have the internet and we have Wikipedia and we have everything else, there's some people who have, of course, looked it up and discovered that, gee, Jesus wasn't really born on December 25th. Well, you know, we know. And we've known it for a long time. There's a theological reason for Christmas being on December 25th, and that is that in Rome, it was the church's desire to take the winter solstice celebration and to focus it in the incarnation. So if you get some of your humanist friends sending you a Christmas card that says, Happy Winter Solstice, say, Thank you very much. It's okay by me. God sanctifies the seasons just as he sanctifies all human hearts. Here are the four affirmations. We affirm the goodness of our humanity. We affirm that each of us can achieve the highest of our human potential. We affirm that Christian people are able to be joyful and understand that deep spiritual quality to be of major importance in our spiritual journeys. And we affirm that Christian people need to be about peace and that peace on earth is not merely a pious sentiment, but it is a vigorous theological concept that all Christian people need to be part of and instruments of as we live. In the book of Genesis, it said God saw everything that he had made and he called it good. And this is an affirmation of the goodness of the cosmos and all that is in it, and every human person. I use the term cosmos because that is the word used for world in the New Testament in Greek, and cosmos doesn't merely mean world, it also means order. It means bringing order out of chaos. And it also means ornament. So I like in Christmas tide to think a little bit about the ornamental quality of the creation and maybe more to the point since each one of us we believe is made in the image and likeness of God that we're part of God's, God's ornamentation of the world and that each of us have a role to play in big and small ways when we affirm the goodness, the beauty, the shape that each one of us brings to the creation God needs you to fulfill his plan for the cosmos. And that is a mystery 
a mystery meaning, not meaning that is unknowable, but a mystery that is something that as you live becomes infinitely knowable. So we affirm the goodness of our humanity as the first affirmation. The second affirmation is the affirmation that all of us can achieve the highest of our human potential. And in the Johannine prologue, we have a biblical affirmation that that is how early Christian people understood the person of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of our humanity, as the template that we lay over our own spiritual development and growth, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so human potential doesn't mean the human potential movement. I think we've pretty well sailed through that period. When I was the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, uh, we had a number of people who had been very influenced by something called Est in the 1970s and 1980s. And in fact, I presided at a wedding uh, of one of Warner Earhart's big lieutenants. And Warner Earhart himself was there, and it was quite an experience. Fortunately, I think that's now behind us. We're not talking about that kind of human potential. What we are talking about is that each one of us participate in the divine life through Jesus. What Jesus is by nature, we become by adoption and grace at our baptism. Father Thomas Keating, uh, one of my heroes uh, in the spiritual life, speaks about the incarnation, this achievement of our the highest and best of our potential, by saying that this process involved Jesus assuming the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. You know, that was a very difficult thing for people to grasp. In fact, people have always had trouble with this. In the 1850s, there was a pre-Raphaelite painter who painted a picture of Jesus in his father's workshop doing carpentry. And it caused an absolute scandal in England. All of the reviewers thought the painting was impious and that it ought not to be displayed. It's a wonderful painting. Jesus is a boy. He's an adolescent. And he's in there with his dad and the plane and they're doing some work on uh, something. And here showing in this domestic scene his mother, his, his siblings... They were absolutely horrified that such a thing would be done. So it isn't that long ago that people had a great difficulty with this. They didn't want to think about Jesus assuming the human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. But Jesus also introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust towards God consciousness. Jesus has joined the human family and has not just subjected himself to the consequences of the flesh, but also introduced the principle of redemption from all of the pre-rational programs for happiness. 
And these pre-rational programs for happiness center around three energy centers, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. If you stop to think about it, all of the pressure points in your life focus on one of those areas on a daily basis. And when they get out of whack, we're out of whack. You know? All of these things are natural human things. We need to confront them on a daily basis. You need to be secure and survive. All of us need affection and some kind of esteem and sense of self. And all of us need to be able to exercise some species of power and control in areas that are important for us to do that. But when all those things get out of whack, we're not in sync. And so dare I use the term, Jesus was able in his teaching and in his mighty works to bring some species of balance to our understanding of the nature of humanity. And the followers of Jesus, certainly the ones who wrote John's gospel, believed that in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And by extension, we were not merely watching somebody who was performing this six inches off the ground and would later fly up into heaven but gave each one of those who heard him and saw him tools that they could use and that they could pass on to others who came to believe in him as they lived their lives. And they began to understand what it meant to be made in the image and likeness of God and how they saw as their vocation the desire to make others realize that great and powerful truth. When you understand that God unconditionally accepts, loves, and forgives you, it provides uh, a sense of relief and serenity that makes you ready to cope with the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. So the affirmation that we can achieve the highest of our human potential is very important. Joy in the spiritual life is not some perpetual state of, of optimism or relentless cheerfulness. There's a home show. I like to watch him called Home Time. Dean, whatever his name is, and he's had more than one partner on this thing. They are relentlessly cheerful. And you know, sometimes it's too much. What do we want? Relentless curmudgeonness? No, no, we don't want that either. It's not an either-or thing, but good night, nurse, you know. It's like Pollyanna, are we having ice cream? You know, maybe not today, you know. We don't know. That's not joyfulness. Joyfulness is the sure and steady realization that the conundrums, the ambiguities, the uncertainties of life can come into surer and clearer focus for you that things that had been baffling to you in the past will come clear, and more to the point, you will find the ability based on living a life of intention and paying attention to know what to do in the midst of things that appear to be uncertain. If there is a Christian tradition that has been able to live in this way since the, its inception, it is Anglicanism. 
Anglicanism has had to live in the middle of yes and no at the same time. Some might say that we have been able under one ecclesiastical umbrella to house two mutually exclusive versions of Christianity. The Catholic view and the Reformed view. And instead, we have understood ourselves to be a church that is both Catholic and Reformed. So joyfulness is the ability to have the hope that that will be something that comes clear over time. Honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm is a way that you might understand expressing hope in the world. You know, when we get baptized, we receive three virtues known as the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. These are the infused virtues. You can amaze your friends with this kind of information, so keep it on ice in case you need to speak about where do we get faith, hope, and love, or maybe those of you who had confirmation a long time ago, faith, hope, and charity. It's the same thing. And finally, we're to be people of peace. Jesus, when he used the term peace, used the Hebrew word shalom, the shalom of God. The shalom of God is not uh, something that merely means the absence of conflict or warfare. It doesn't mean that we're all praying only for the absence of conflict or warfare. We know that there needs to be peace brought to a great many things, both external to us and internally. Shalom is a word that over time has been defined by the scholars uh, of Hebrew as a word that can mean completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, and the absence of agitation or discord. And so the shalom of God being an, being an instrument of the shalom of God means that you can bring to bear all of those qualities to your relational life externally in the world as you make a difference, as you fulfill God's plan for you uh, in the world. That all of these things, are, I would guess that if we did, were each of us able to do two or three of them well, we'd be making a lot of progress, you know? My former bishop, Bill Swing, said one time at Christ Church, I remember this, he was speaking about the clergy. I'm thinking about this because this is my ordination anniversary. He said, you know, most priests uh, need to do about 14 things really well. And most of us can do six, maybe seven, really well. So that means you need help to do the other seven or eight. Well, that comment didn't have just to do with members of the clergy. It has everything to do with all of the skills and abilities that you and I possess in whatever vocation in life we choose to live. And so we are dependent on one another. And we do understand the need to see uh, how we can become more excellent in what it is that we do. And so when you think about uh, cultivating the shalom of God, there's a lot to work on. 
And I'll just bet that uh, most of us can do two or three of these pretty well. And we need help with the others. That's what the church is about. That's what community is about. That's what fellowship is about. The goodness of our humanity, that we can achieve the highest of our human potential, it's possible to be joyful, we're to be people of peace. Now that's the Christmas affirmation for the whole of the 12 days. But we have today in the Gospel, the Johannine Prologue, the introduction to John's Gospel, a little 3995 biblical scholarship. There's various views about where this section came from. Some believed it was an independent piece that uh, John uh, attached to the gospel, or it went through a process of editing and then got attached and reworking. Doesn't matter, but just so you know that it is something that can be seen as a unit separately. And it's a description about how Jesus represents to the world the illuminative processes of God. And it begins to lay out to the reader or the listener what the gospel is going to disclose about the goal of the Christian life, or let's say a major goal of the Christian life, which is mystical union with God. Mystical union sounds a little bit, ooh, you know, twilight zony. When you say mystical union, here's one way you can understand mystical union. Mystical union is having the same unmediated experience of the other that you do of yourself, in this case, of God. So it is the opening of two realities, one into another, in an unmediated and direct sense. Some of you have had this experience in your prayer. Some of you have had this experience in other areas of your life where you have uh, gained a complete knowledge of something else, such that two realities have opened one into another, that you have an unmediated understanding of this. All of us know people who have certain skills and abilities who have almost the apparently mystical powers. Students of the spiritual life know that this process can be cultivated and developed in all human beings. So that's one of the big goals of the Johannine Prologue to introduce this, to introduce the importance of light, the illuminative processes of God on all aspects of human relationship. But the other thing is that the author of John's Gospel is at pains to speak about who Jesus is. And he refers to Jesus in this prologue as the Logos. Logos in Greek means word, but it's one of those shalom kind of words because it can mean thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, standard, or my favorite, the organizing principle. So for John, Jesus constituted with regard to humanity and divinity as they relate to one another, the organizing principle by which we understand God's plan for the cosmos. And in his teaching, and in his words, and in his works, 
we have learned something about how to do that. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity uh, to live into the promises of God. Give thanks for being one of God's ornaments. Each one of you is important for God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways. And Christmas is the season where we celebrate that great gift. Amen.